0: What are vital conversations?
1: Vital Definition 1
0: Of the utmost importance.
1: Contemporary, meaningful, valuable. Concerned
2: with or necessary to the maintenance of life.
0: Health, resiliency, wholeness, life. What are vital conversations?
1: Important talks between two or more people about contemporary issues that lead to
0: or are a challenge to
1: the health, the vitality, life of our churches, our communities,
0: our people, our world. Welcome to Vital Conversations.
1: Welcome, everyone. It's so good to see everyone on the call today. So many friends coming on board. This is our weekly Vital Conversation series. This is where we can bring um, speakers who are resources for you, for the local church. So today, I am so honored to have a good friend with us. I am Annie Arnoldy. I'm the Director of Connectional Ministry for the Mountain Sky Conference. And my good friend Mark Feldmeyer is joining us. Mark and I were able to serve the same congregation for three years, St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. So I will introduce him a bit more in a minute. I want to offer a couple things for you as we get started. One of those things is um, asking if you will please mute yourself. And if you are joining us by a phone, Um, At a a certain point when we ask for questions, if you'd like to unmute, you can use star six and you'll receive a voice command to unmute, and then star six to mute yourself again. Otherwise, um, we'll stay muted until the uh, question portion, and you are always welcome to put your questions into the chat box. Dawn will kind of moderate the chat box for us, um, let us know what's going on there. And then I also wanna just let everybody know this will be recorded. So um, this will go on our YouTube page for future reference and on our Mountain Sky Conference website under Vital Conversations. All right, let me tell you just a bit more before we dive in. So my friend Mark Feldmeyer came to us from the California Pacific Conference and he served congregations in San Diego Um, and the surrounding area for most of his career. Um, I love the way he shares stories in his sermons um, about early careers, including being a phlebotomist, if I am remembering correctly. Um, And he and his wife, Lori, have raised three kids. They have one left at home um, who just got his driver's license and just kind of um, getting everybody into their own careers. It's also been fun to hear about that over the years. So Mark serves as senior pastor of St. Andrew United Methodist Church. This is a 3,500 member congregation in the south suburbs of Denver in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. It is um, multifaceted and also a congregation that has people across the political spectrum. When I came to St. Andrew um, to serve there as one of their pastors, I was surprised to learn, I thought St. Andrew was this across the board, progressive um, church. But when you get into people's values and beliefs, we found out on a weekly basis that there were just people across the spectrum. Um, And so this sermon series happened, uh, let's see, in in the fall of 2019, I think, um, or 2018.
3: Yeah, first quarter of 2019.
1: Okay. And um, it was amazing what happened in the congregation because Mark chose to start engaging the issues. So this is what we're going to share with you today, especially as we go into another election season so what i want to say i'm just going to read a little bit about the book and then i have a series of questions for mark that we'll talk about and then it'll be opened up to ask for you to ask your questions so this book a house divided i wanted to show it and make sure all of you get this book a house divided is really about our contemporary christian faith and how we engage our faith in the world and how we engage our faith together It's based on the assumption that Americans are not nearly as polarized in their actual convictions as the current political rhetoric suggests. Polls consistently show that we have far more in common than we've been led to believe by the media, which are driven by profit, and our political institutions, which are motivated by power. The antidote to this politics of contempt is not a a politics of compromise, which seeks to end the disagreement. In our politics, as in our religion, we tend to make idols out of centrism and the middle ground. There's nothing inherently noble or courageous about standing in the middle. Democracy always thrives on the vigorous competition of opposing ideas, and Christian witness always demands a prophetic spirit that drives us to the margins. Consensus politics often lacks the moral courage to effectively dismantle the evils and injustices of our world, such as racism, sexism, homophobia, to name a few. A politics of compromise is not the cure to what ails us. So we're gonna dive in. All right, Mark, here's my first question for you. So you've led many congregations. Um, you've had never had a group of people who thinks completely alike on political issues. I think the natural reaction for people is to try not to talk about divisive issues. So how has your theology around politics and compassion and sort of speaking out about it evolved over time?
3: Well, it's a great question. I think it's probably a question that all of us as faith leaders uh, struggle with, is um, where do we draw that line between um, preaching and, and, and doing politics? I, I would start by saying I've always been captivated by um, by the relationship between theology and politics, especially when I was in grad school or undergrad school, I, I studied um, intensely this um, this movement called the Confessing Church movement in Germany in uh, the early 1930s. It was led by good people like Bonhoeffer and and Bart and, and Niebuhr to name just a few, and they were trying to um, to to build out a, a foundation and framework for uh, opposition to um to, to nazism in general and hitler in particular and those claims that he was making and so they drafted this amazing beautiful uh, document very simple called the barman declaration and in that what they uh, what they try to do is address this dangerous dualism i think that uh, plagues christian thought and that is the dualism that says um that, that, that Christian faith is a spiritual matter and politics is a non-spiritual matter. And so we do this in our Christian faith. We separate body from, from spirit, uh, um, f- flesh from soul, um, heaven from hell, eternal life from this life, and we live in this dualist, these dualistic categories. What I think those Christians in the, in the Confessing Movement were trying to say is that when you, um, when you follow Christ, uh, that, that commitment makes particular claims, not on just part of your life, but on all of your life. Uh, and so that d- document, if you ever get a chance to read it, um, basically says, we, we cannot give our loyalties to Hitler um, because our ultimate loyalties and complete loyalties are to Christ. And so they begin to frame out this way to articulate um, how, how they experience faith and how they do politics. And um, I guess that's my long way of saying that all theology is political. All theology is political. Not all politics is theological, but all theology is political in nature. Our faith obligates us to, um, in in making claims in our lives, our faith obligates us to act politically. And so when people come forward for baptism, we ask them, will you reject the evil powers of this world? Uh, will you resist evil, injustice, and oppression, whatever forms they present themselves? Um, that's about as political as it gets. Uh, and um, and people say, I do, or I will, and then they come to worship and they go, hey, wait, can we leave politics out of church? Uh, because it's uncomfortable. And yet we've already, in our baptismal vow, uh, um, agreed to do political work. Um, you know, Jesus, his very first sermon in Luke four, uh, announces a, 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 a very political uh, platform um, to uh, re- release the captives, to uh, bring recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce the Jubilee year. If you look at all those, those are profoundly political claims. I'm going to um, release captives. That's today we. Would be, would be called, um, you know, prison reform, um, recovery of sight to the blind, that's health care. Um, these aren't spiritual categories that Jesus was speaking in. He was speaking in deeply political categories. Um, a, a jubilee year, to announce a jubilee year meant uh, economic um, reform and implications around uh, indebtedness. So, you know, we um, we have as our basis as Christians uh, uh, this this inherent um, obligation to do politics in the world. And so that comes, that, so that's my, my theological argument. W- the reason I think it's important to do politics uh, in, in church on a Sunday morning is because, at least in my experience, every time there was another school shooting, every time there was another um, uprising due to a public lynching of a black man, um, every time there was another um, terrorist attack, on our soil or, or elsewhere, um, people would come to church saying, uh, you're going to talk about this, right? Or they would email me ahead of time. You're going to talk about this. And I decided, so in response to that, rather than reacting every time something happened in the world, I decided that, um, that I'd take a different approach and begin to give people, um, uh, the, the framework for, for struggling with those, those issues in the world on their own. Uh, and uh, we did that through, what we call the politics of compassion, which was sort of framed out according to uh, what we called axioms or these self-evident truths that um, that people from both sides of the aisle could, could agree on. So, um, that's my long answer, Annie, to the question about, you know, how it's changed for me over time. Uh, and part of it's theological, but a lot of it's just practical and, and a practical response to... Uh, a crazy, crazy world that we're living in.
1: So let me follow up by just asking, I remember when you first preached this sermon series, um, and I recall at least two times where there was a standing ovation at the end of a political sermon, which I don't know if has ever happened ever. (laughs) Why do you think that was? So maybe go a little bit more into um, what you feel like people were getting out of uh, hearing these sermons.
3: Well, just announcing that we we're going to spend eight weeks on the most divisive issues of our day uh, raised the anxiety level in everybody, uh, both anticipation level and, and anxiety. And I think it probably elevated the anxiety mostly for those uh, who would identify as being on the right side of the aisle or the conservative side. And so I had a lot of folks come in in the, in the week or two ahead of that sermon series as we announced it that said, Look, I, I don't like to mix politics with my religion, and um, they would set appointments with me to say, I'm going to give you one chance, uh, and um, if you if you you know basically sort of repeat the political sound bites that I can hear on my favorite cable news network or the other side uh, network, um, then I'm not going to come back. And I had other people who said I'm not going to come at all, uh, and um, I'm going to go find another church. So. Um, they Actually, just announcing that we were going to do this series was divisive enough, uh, and I think it it showed us uh, the, the need to to, 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 to to preach in a way that that's still extended the, the hand to both sides of the aisle. So I preached it, and um, it happened to be, you know, I planned the sermon series like almost a year in advance, and so I had no idea that the first sermon in the series would be on immigration on the very on the very week that the immigration crisis in our country had had reached its pinnacle with with, with families being separated at the border literally that week and and kids uh images of kids in cages uh, on the national news and so um i had a lot of people who stayed home we had a lot more that came to church i think we were up over 20 percent in worship that day and um and i i I, I leaned into um, a gospel, and mostly a, uh, an Old Testament uh, uh, concept of the Gare or the stranger, and how 92 times in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture we are commanded to love the Gare or the stranger, the, the, um, the refugee, the sojourner. And I really built that out, and, um, and at the end of the sermon, yeah, people, uh, to my surprise, uh, and relief. Um, people actually stood up and applauded. And, and I, I'll say what it meant. What that meant to me was not a, sort of a personal praise in, by any stretch. But I think people were A, extremely relieved that I didn't offend anybody, and B, I think they felt like they found a place uh, together on common ground. I just had uh, one of my biggest benefactors here at St. Andrew um, uh, thinks a little bit differently on this issue than me. But I had lunch with her last week, and she said, I came to church wondering, what are you going to do? And can I stay? And and she told me over lunch last week that it was that sermon that changed her understanding of immigration. Uh, and she had come with sort of this pro-Trump, um, um, you know, um, a, a policy and, and, and understood a little bit better about how her Christian faith informs those decisions. So it was, it was really powerful and um, and that just sort of got us going with uh, seven more weeks of controversial conversations.
1: Right and I think I remember your email inbox was blowing up that whole time. <laughs> you would get these responses after every sermon um, and I sort of wonder both what did you learn about the congregation after or during um, the series? And then how do you think it opened people in general to this politics of compassion? And maybe say a little bit more about that.
3: So one of the strategic things that I did, um, and it, it, it was a hunch and it worked, um, we asked the congregation the week prior to the sermon that I was preaching, to to complete a brief survey on that topic so in here at st andrew i send a e-note out every wednesday um, and uh, to the congregation and they get that and i just included a little link click here it'll take you five seconds to complete or ten seconds to complete this brief survey and i wanted to know where the people were uh, especially um like in the first 24 hours you really know from your polls what you know where people are after the first couple to 300. So, you know, we would regularly have seven to 800 responses uh, every week. And, um, And so I knew going into the sermon where people were and where I needed to sort of lean in the conversation, but it was also a creative way to, and we would post the results in the middle of the sermon. I would, on the screen, I would just point to the fact, here's where we are on this issue. And I think just that alone um, overwhelming almost every week we saw that people, you know, 75 to 80, 85 percent were in agreement on, on these questions. And, um, and I think that sort of, again, alleviated some of the anxiety uh, and, and people began to think, I may be Republican or Democrat, but we're, we share some of this together. So um, that, um, that, that common ground uh, that I was able to identify was important. And then, so what you'll see if, if you do read the book, you'll see that I have three, what I call three core commitments to a politics of compassion. It's important to note that the, the word compassion in the in, in the Greek uh, comes from the, the, the Greek uh, root splankna, uh, which means gut. And so it was the ancients understanding that the seat of human emotion wasn't in the heart, wasn't in the head, but it was in the gut. That is to say, when you when you are moved in your gut, um, that's that's the purest um, sign of, of, of where we are and, and how we're moved to action. And so, to say that um, we're going to practice a politics compassion is to say, um, where do we feel this in our gut? And put aside the sound bites, all the talking points that we get on our favorite cable news network. And let's just address, for example, the issue of healthcare uh, as it relates to our gut. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, you can say, "Look, I, I'm not a big, I'm not in favor of big government, right? That's a head thing, that's a philosophical thing. Uh, I'm not a, in favor of of universal healthcare. That's a policy thing. But are we all in favor of making sure that um, those who are sick are cared for? That's a gospel grounded." Um, Understanding of what it means to be Christian. So we begin we begin there with with this idea of compassion how are we moved? And so I frame it out as you know, compassion has three components: uh, a kinship or really radical kinship. that when Jesus sat at a table uh, there were Roman soldiers there were uh, there were zealots, Jewish zealots there were um, there were spiritual folks, there were outsiders there were those who were what we might call the friendless, um, those that had no place. And Jesus creates this amazing table that's wide enough and long enough for everybody, uh, despite their diversity of experience or thought, to be at the table. And so kinship recognizes that the the length and and width of our table determines the depth and breadth of our compassion. The more people we have at the table, the longer we can stay there, uh, the more our compassion will expand for others. So kinship and then kenosis is a Greek word You'll see it in um, Paul's letter to Philippians, especially. Uh, Paul describes Christ Jesus as the one, as he says, who was equal to Christ and yet didn't exploit that equality for his own purposes, but then poured out himself or self-emptied himself um, onto others. And so kenosis means the kind of solidarity that leads us to to sacrifice for others. to advocate for others, so uh, kenosis. And then this idea of delight is the third component, that delight means literally uh, in the Hebrew, the word is kafates, and it means to to lean in or bend toward the other with curiosity. So when we look at the other, even though they may be so politically different from us that we we quietly and secretly might want to punch them in the face. Um, instead, we see in that face, the very image of God, the Imago Dei, and that calls us to lean closer into them and um, to, with, with curiosity to one another's story and where they are. So those are the three components to a politics of compassion.
1: I love those. Um, I mean, they're just one of those things that, could change the entire way somebody thinks through their lens of preaching because through a politics of compassion you can preach any subject any issue Um, and then you have these axioms so tell me a little bit about what is important about um axioms in our shared life of faith
3: yeah it's a great question so an axiom really is uh, literally just a um, a statement that is taken to be true and self-evident at its face value. So regardless of what you believe, what political persuasion might be, or even your life experience, you can say, for example, the sun always rises in the east, right? That's an axiom. Um, now, scientists would say it's not really the east, but, um, but we experience it as the east. You might say to be a little bit more you know, fun with it, cats always land on their feet. Well, may not be a scientifically based axiom, but we know that cats usually land on their feet. How do we find just some simple statements whereby we can find agreement? And it occurred to me that actually the Christian faith is is profoundly axiomatic, actually. Um, We have these axioms that are part of our history and tradition as Christians. We don't call them that, we call them creeds. Uh, But um, creeds were literally intended to, uh, to unify uh, uh, our source of understanding and our beliefs in ways that everybody could find agreement on. And it took them sometimes years to craft these. The, the very simplest axiom in the early church is, um, is, is three words. Uh, Jesus is Lord. It's an axiom. It's a, it's, a, it's a creedal statement that the early church developed which had, by the way, deep, deep political implications. Because to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that uh, Caesar's not Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is to say uh, Rome is not Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is to say the Roman Empire uh, does not determine my ultimate loyalties, but Jesus does. So uh, I, I realized that when I preach this series that people were going to come in with with their talking points and their checklist. Did I say this? Did I I not say that? And um, what I said is, let's put all that aside. Let's start with some things that we can agree upon. Um, And so in the book around climate change, for example, uh, in that chapter, one of the axioms uh, is we have we have lost our intimate connection with creation as humans in the modern world that was an axiom you may or may not agree with that and maybe here in colorado those of you on the call who live in colorado uh, probably experience creation and the wonder of creation in ways that other places don't but the truth is we have lost our connection with creation and to the extent that we you know we don't harvest our own eggs or milk or we don't go to a, a, to a well to pump our water uh, it just shows up, and we rarely get outside to witness wildlife or to see a falling star. So if if that is an axiom that we can all agree on, that we don't experience creation enough, or at least the way our ancestors did, then maybe that will inform how we understand, talk about climate change. Um, so it's not a politically charged conversation, it's one about our relationship or our, or our kinship with uh, with Earth. So So axioms are are really important in the book and kind of create a framework for compassionate conversations.
1: So as we go into the next few months, which I'm just imagining every pastor everywhere is sort of cringing that we're going into this very contentious election season on top of so many other stresses right now, how might you suggest clergy and laity leaders encourage and engage their congregations over the next few months?
3: Well, um, to the extent that you can gather the courage to do so, I would say talk about, um, talk about what's going on because over the next 40, what is it, 43 days now, 44 days, this, the issues and, and, and politics in general will be, um, We'll be at the center of most conversations both in the home in the neighborhood uh, at the soccer field when you're watching your kids play wherever you are it's going to come up right um and so instead of being reactive to it uh, why not be proactive in helping folks understand uh, regardless of which side of the alley you're on um, there is there is a way to talk about these issues and the concerns of our day compassionately and and with with justice um i i joke around I, i've got a neighbor uh named phil and phil is a pill uh he and i have uh, dramatically different uh understandings of the world and of politics and we've had those conversations you know over a labor day barbecue right uh that 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 can immediately turn into a disaster if you're not careful. What I've learned from people like Phil and what I've learned from preaching is that you can talk about things uh, in ways um, that don't have to be like an MMA cage fight. Um, So what I suggest is if you you dare to talk from the pulpit or to have conversations in your church about politics, A, don't talk about, don't talk about your favorite political party or your favorite political or hope for elected official don't talk about Biden or Trump. Don't talk about being Democrat or Republican. Uh, because what that does is it just identifies what team you play for and what team you're against. And and that's how our world works today. There has to be winners, there has to be losers. And unfortunately, in the church, uh, when that happens, people leave. So don't talk about um, leaders or parties. Instead, emphasize your shared problems and not your differences. So you may you may, again, disagree on health care because, because Phil doesn't like big government. But you can say in light of COVID, for example, um, almost 30 million Americans lost their employer-based health care as a result of COVID and, and the job loss. Um, to say to Phil, Phil, if you lost your job and didn't have health care and your family got sick, um, that's a problem that we would share together regardless of how we perceive it. Healthcare care and who should pay for it. What would you do, Phil, in that experience if you didn't have health care? Where would you go, where would you turn? That's it's a better way to have conversations than to talk about, you know, um, the five reasons why, you know, Obamacare should or shouldn't be repealed or replaced or whatever. Um, I, I also say, you know, don't compare the best in your own political party with the worst in the other political party. And um, that's otherwise known as as stereotyping, and we do that rather um, conveniently to say, for example, those on the left are Volvo driving elitists, right, or whatever, or to say that those on the right are redneck truck driving, you know, um, whatever. So avoid putting people in categories. Remember that story in the Gospels in which Jesus tells the parable of the the, the tax man and and the pharisee who both go to the, the temple to pray and and the, and the Pharisee is so proud of himself and the tax man is so ashamed and jesus says one of them goes away closer to god's heart than the other um, stereotypes get us in trouble and um, they prevent dialogue so so stay away from stereotypes uh, and then you know as i said before bend bend toward difference because if you don't then you'll You'll, um, you'll succumb to indifference. The opposite of compassion is not um, hatred. It's not hostility. Think about it. The, ap- the opposite of compassion, if compassion means to feel in your gut, the opposite of compassion is to feel nothing at all. And we, the Greeks had a word for that actually. It's called apatheia, or apathy. And we, we have a world today that's uh, plagued by apathy and hostility and not compassion. So um, be mindful of, you know, of of leaning toward difference, knowing that when you do that, conversion is absolutely necessary and uh, inevitable. If we're gonna have healthy, honest conversations with others, we have to know that we don't have all the answers and that in those conversations we might be be changed, Uh, not to their side, but to God's side um, and and God's side is that 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 side of the encounter with the other that allows us to take off all that heavy armor of God that we like to fight with and to lay our weapons down and to have right. generous conversations. Yeah. So I that's part of my answer, Annie, but my other part, and this is what we're going to talk about um, in a call tonight, then I'll invite you in a little bit to to join me at six o'clock tonight for a national conversation, but um, I'm going to be talking tonight with uh, somebody uh, who um, we're, going to fr- we're going to frame out this concern that we have as church leaders today. Um, we might expect that our, the anxieties around the election will end on November 4th, when in fact um, November 4th will be the start of a new chapter uh, in what will almost inevitably be a crisis, uh, uh, brought about by contested elections, by or contested results, uh, you know, um, Russian interference. Uh, I mean, there there are there are folks uh, who are in really important places these days who are framing out scenarios uh, that, um, in in worst case scenarios, might actually suggest armed revolution. Um, armed revolution in response to um, um, secret maneuverings or unlawful maneuverings of of parties and and politicians around the election results. Um, And I don't wanna argue the merits of those, but I do wanna say, how do we as as Christian leaders and church leaders today, before that happens, begin to plan for what I believe will be inevitable um, um, hardship in in our country we have to lead spiritual leaders through that if if you know um public lynchings of black men result in marches um i think we can expect that um that uh, any contested election that doesn't get resolved quickly will result in um in in our streets and our cities um, erupting in violence and that's a real concern for us and um we, we need to lead through that so I offer that up as um, as something for you all to think about.
1: I think that's so vitally important, and i'm I'm kind of thinking of the flip side of our own self care then through all of this. And I mean, you name it, it's happened this year, and I feel like clergy are are just um, sort of one of the high risk populations. For burnout right now, and and um, for places of concern with mental well-being, I mean, we need to care for ourselves and for one another. So, what? How does your faith keep you going in these hard days?
3: Yeah, um, there's this old farming proverb. and I'm not a farmer, but uh, that says that God doesn't settle all accounts in October. <laughs> um, meaning, of course, that um, you know. God plays the long game, and on those days uh, when when I feel personally uh, hopeless <laughs> for any number of reasons, when I look at the world and and I and I want to shake my fist at God and ask, you know, why why there isn't greater justice and a greater movement and progress toward a more compassionate country, I right? I have to remember that God plays the long game and. Um, I have to trust that the, um, in the darkness, um, God's already working on bringing light and the death, there's resurrection. And it's probably not gonna happen on my time. So um, I wanna gather up that defiant courage and sometimes that's a daily process. Uh, through prayer and through meditation, through caring for myself physically, I, I bike ride a lot um, and on the bike, I work out a lot of my angst and, uh, and, and worries but, um, you know, we, we know, I mean, I read a study recently, just a couple weeks ago. It's expected that one in five churches across the country, not Methodist churches in particular, but churches in general, will close within 18 months uh, as a result of COVID. Uh, and probably added pressures around the election. Um, about 30% of those who are actively worshiping pre-COVID are no longer worshiping either in person or virtually. Will we get those back? Will they come back? Um, we have to expect that not all of them will. All of these things are putting pressure on us as clergy uh, to perform at a, at a higher level and to get results according to metrics that were pre-COVID. And we haven't quite yet figured out what, what's the new metric to measure effectiveness. It's gonna be a huge question. I, I read one study um, from a consulting firm that said that more than half of their pastors that they work with on a monthly basis, more than half, have expressly stated that they're considering leaving their churches um, as a result of the pressures that, that are put on them, not just from politics, but from, you know, how many of us on this call have, have gotten almost daily calls or emails, when are you gonna open up again? Why can't we worship? We can, you know, we can go here, we can go there, but you won't let us in the doors. Uh, here at St. Andrew, we haven't started uh, in-person worship yet. I get those emails and phone calls every day people saying we're going to leave because um, you go somewhere else. Uh, we are uh, we are in this strange place where all of the anxieties of our culture and our people that they're carrying get displaced on us um, as spiritual leaders. And we are uh, in serious threat of well, daily of, of burnout and self-destruction as a result of that. It's It's not fair, but it's that's where we are.
1: It is. And, and this next little question I have for you is not to at all make light of the serious nature of what is happening in our world right now. But here's one of your secrets. Everybody, I'm telling you one of his secrets. One, a mas- Mark is a master of clergy humor. How do you keep the lightness while talking about really serious things and and you know I would say that's the human compassion that's you know a piece of the delight is and the kinship is how do we connect um but also in terms of our humor so let me just ask you where do you get the masterful clergy humor and jokes that you use
3: yeah I it's funny I I think it was Anne Lamott who said, you know, my mind is a bad neighborhood. I, I don't want to go into it alone. Um, that's, that's sort of my mind. I, I when I live there long enough, and I, I fight my way out of it with, with humor. And so I, I spend a lot of time just thinking through scenarios that, that might diffuse conversations um, that, that are heated. Um, Edwin Friedman has this, this great proverb that says, when your wife locks you out of the house, you don't have a problem with the door. Right? Okay. Um, there's great wisdom there, and so how do we diffuse the animosity and hostility that's often directed toward us? It's it's knowing that it's not it's not about the door, it's not about the presenting issue. There's something else going on, and how uh, how do we uh, you know, how do we identify that and speak to it? And humor, humor, um, it, it 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 robs people of the power uh, that they would have over us. Um, it's the, the other Hebrew proverb that says, you know, "When somebody calls you an ass, put a put a saddle on your back." Right? Um, be playful. Playfulness right now is is uh, you know it's it's a diminishing resource.
1: It is. So now we're gonna. I want to um, definitely turn it over to take some questions from everybody who's on here, and I've got my chat up too. And I see uh, Michelle Kaminsky. Hi, Michelle. She would like to know when you get the questions. Why aren't we meeting in person? What is your answer?
3: I've been saying um, that our primary commitment is to is to do no harm, and um, and you know I think that only goes so far, but it's a beginning point to say. We are committed, uh, if we are to love our neighbors, uh, to do no harm, and and that means that um, we're going to re refocus our uh, our energies as well as our resources on ways that um, that can do good without doing harm. In our case, we've made major investments in, in our online technologies, and um, just in the last you know four or five months, we've we've made incredible progress and. The quality of our product and how we how we do what we do on a first Sunday morning. We are um, starting next month. We, we're going to start a Sunday evening, Vesper style service. We uh, have purchased some very large tents that we'll put on our campus. People will come and uh, practice all of the safety protocols and and uh, limit the number of people. But we're going to try to provide some uh, experience uh, every Sunday evening at five for people who who want i mentioned earlier polls and we we did a poll at saint andrew and asked you know basically what their appetite folks appetite for coming back and surprisingly it was like 61 percent were in favor of coming back in some capacity for in person and so that told us it's it's time uh, to do something it's not going to be what they want um, and it's not going to take away from what we do really well on sunday mornings but so yeah that's that's kind of how we're dealing with it right now
1: have you, and I've actually wondered about this, have you projected out um, just a, a long-term timeline of don't expect us to come back until this sort of date or month?
3: For me, the earliest in my own mind, and we're talking about that with our executive team every week is is Easter of 2021, uh, would be the earliest in our minds. Um, and even that's probably gonna be too soon because one of the, Again, one of the um, indicators in our poll suggested that that, um, that people would not be ready to come back for in-person Sunday morning in large groups um, without a vaccine. And I think that's probably the case for most of us on the call. Uh, the vaccine will be the, uh, the trigger for, for when we can get back in person. I, you know, privately, I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking fall of 2021 before we're back to something that resembles what we were doing on March 15th or whatever when we stopped.
1: Yeah. I think it's really important to name this because what I've sensed is there's so much anxiety to get back to in-person or normal. And then um, I know that several of our clergy and churches have tried and then a couple of times they have to send these notes out that say, oh, I, my kid was exposed or this happened so we can't do this yet or we need to pull back because of this. And I just wonder if um, just sort of saying, here's what we know will do no harm and kind of setting a date way out in the future might even um, diffuse some of the anxiety and really reduce clergy stress amidst everything else that is going on. Oh, let's see, Emily Fleming has a comment for us. The Lewis Center reported, says that the United Methodist Church has record low numbers of clergy under the age of 35. I wonder if one reason includes the inability to address these divisive issues. Mm. How can we empower young clergy to have these tough conversations with with folks their parents and grandparents' age?
3: Yeah, Emily, you just named, uh, I think, what actually proved to be true. When I preached the sermon series, the, 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 the demographic that, uh, that we grew most in during those eight weeks and folks that stuck around afterward were the, um, the millennial folks who, who heard it by you know um, the word that was spread into the community that, that we're dealing with this issue or that issue. Uh, climate change, for example. It, um, and people showed up specifically to hear what we had to say about the issue. And in general, the, those were younger people. Uh, who understand that uh, that, a, that, a, uh, that a cogent faith and an authentic faith should have something to say about the real world. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, climate change in particular, you know, the way I, people have asked me, why did I choose these particular topics? Well, I looked at all the national polls that were basically seeking responses among the American electorate. What are the most important things that drive you to to, to the voting booth? And um, you know, it was climate change. It was um, healthcare. It was racism, um, Islamic extremism, or terrorism, and uh, you know, a number of these issues. And so, people, you know, just pay attention to where people are. What? What? Where are the people? You know, and how are the people being um, being driven to the polls? And that's where we should we should be talking about those things.
1: Who else would like to offer a response or question? I wanna open it up. Um, things this has sparked for you, questions you have, or other places where you'd like Mark to speak a little. And Emily, do you wanna ask a follow-up question? Cause I know you, you always have a follow-up question. <laughs>
2: Well, Annie, it's Don Sperber. Um, I want to say, Mark, how very much I appreciated your book. And that was my only acquaintance first with you personally, other than just the very brief times I've been able to come and and hear you. And I, I first of all found that the issues are so genuinely a part of what's happening with people and it's you know it doesn't matter whether it's over coffee or the fact that you're just going to the store for something for something to eat all of those things are in our gut you've said i want to know how we feel like we can begin somehow to encourage people to do this kind of conversation. Are you finding ways in which you're using both the reflections you have and all in the congregation? Or how are you using
3: it? Yeah, so right now St. Andrew is, uh, it just finished week three uh, last night. Uh, We're doing, we're doing the book study and we're using the the, the the study guide that's in the book for each chapter, so if you, for those of you who don't have the book, the each chapter f- finishes with you know a group study guide that sort of begins with uh, getting into the issues, and then going into a deeper dive. It also has um, each chapter has a about a five minute video that we produced for uh, each of these topics, and um, you can find those on, on the St. Andrew YouTube channel, or you can actually find them also on my personal website. Um, if you want to watch those Uh, and those actually or i wrote those this this summer so the book was written of course uh, over a year ago it takes a year and a half to get a book to to print uh, through a publisher but so there's some i think most of the videos that i've produced are are really speaking into the covid context and i think you'll find some relevancy there so for example how do we talk about healthcare uh, in light of what we've learned from the COVID experience, uh, um, and uh, so, yeah, I would say what I'm hearing is that there are churches around the country who uh, are basically using this book to, uh, to guide their conversations, and others who said, I've already planned my fall curriculum, but we're going to use it uh, starting January, January 1st. So the, the, the study guide is, I think, really useful uh, to get those conversations started, and, and that may be the best way. Uh, instead of trying to preach these topics it may be the best way to get your feet wet with just gathering small groups of people to have these conversations. So, thanks Don.
1: Thank you very much. So Emily um, did ask a follow-up question about uh, what, what worship resources could you share on these topics which you addressed a bit and I found you know if you just go to Chalice Press, website. Um, that's where you'll find Mark's book and the videos, but also um, say what your website is again.
3: Yeah, it's markfeldmeyer.com. Yeah. Okay, I'll put Pretty it in simple. here.
1: What are other questions, thoughts or responses? Let's see, Janita Kreniak says, at St. Andrew, you have a large enough population base to have diversity. When we are the lone progressive voice in a sea of conservatives, is there anything you would do differently if you were in a small rural congregation, um, which is populated with almost all conservative tendencies? Yeah, anything you do differently from the pulpit if you were in a small rural congregation?
3: Um, wow. I- I've talked with some folks. I talked to somebody last week, a member of our conference, in a very rural place, and and I realized just how uh, how difficult that is, and um, and I think it's complicated in her case because she's female, and so uh, she's already in um, what what might feel like hostile territory uh, because of her gender, and then it's complicated even more by uh, her politics, and so. Um, I, I, again, I would, I would say it, it's gonna be harder to, to, to preach over time some of these, these topics the way I did, uh, but um, the study guide itself might be, might be really informative and, and reduce the anxiety enough for people to have conversations. Um, and I, I, I'm really proud of the study guide because it steers away from, uh, you know, from, again, from sound bites and, and asking people what they think politically and it keeps them grounded in scripture. And, you know, people have said, look, your book, your book leans a little left. Um, and I'm I, I, what I say in response is, the gospel knows neither left nor right, conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. I hope at the end of the day, you find the, the book leans gospel. And, um, and that gospel puts us not on one side of the line or the other, but it puts us with the right people. Uh, and that's the people that are disenfranchised, the oppressed, and those that want to advocate for those. Um, so, it it you might find it leans left. I I think so on issues like climate change. I believe in the science, uh, and I don't make any uh, you know excuses for that in the book. And so people could say that leans pretty left. I mean, I the chapter on homosexuality, um, probably is going to trigger a lot of people who want to live in those six. Scripture passages that, that that don't want to think outside the box, um, but my the chapter on medical aid and dying um, would be surprised for many because while I say I affirm the right for people um, to choose that pathway if they if they if that's their um, their option, but I at the same time I think medical aid and dying is a reflection of our general failure as a society to um to address the journey of death and our desire to push it away and to hide it uh, or to be hidden from others in our dying and so you might say that's actually more of a more of a conservative approach in that particular chapter so yeah
1: anyone else um in just a couple minutes we'll do a couple announcements there's another opportunity for you to hear mark and sort of ongoing Uh, resources, but anybody else want to ask a question or um, offer a response?
4: Hi, this is Harvey. I've got a little more of an answer to the person who asked about serving in a rural congregation and tackling these issues. One of the many brilliant things Mark has done in the sermon series and in the book, he starts with Scripture. And he starts with the biblical and theological values that are there. And most people, most people don't, I think. Most people, C.S. Lewis is attributed to have said, most of us start with our political judgment and then we find proof texts. Uh, We need to start with our book and see the values that are there. And Mark has done that in just this conversation here with Luke 4. Uh, he's done that in the book. So if we start with our book and the, com- the mandate to be compassionate, which Jesus says in Luke 6, where does that lead us? Instead of starting with our, as Marcus wisely said again, starting with our political party.
1: Harvey, I love that. Thank you for that encouragement. And of course, Um, That's where you always led from as well uh, in all your years of preaching. So we have a really good question. Um, Stacy asks, as a person of color, sometimes it feels like we are projects instead of peers. How do you think we, the church, can combat that? And you have a chapter on racism in the book.
3: Yeah, um, yeah, that's just a profound insight. I think it speaks uh, to um, to all three of these core commitments to politics, compassion, uh, kinship. Number one, uh, th- that um, that as we sit at the table, we have to and and we and we talk about these really hard issues. We have to look around the table, and we have to ask ourselves who's not here, who is missing, and and if if we're missing the voices um that are contributing to the conversations instead of talking about the people uh who we're missing so for example we do this a lot with the lgbt community when we talk about them as as a community itself or as an other a, instead of uh, seeing them as, as subjects in conversation so kinship uh, to ask ourselves who's at the table and who's not uh, who's sharing the table with us and is that shared uh, is that a place of shared power um, kenosis, you know, those of us who are white um, are, are obligated uh, to, to this movement of anti-racism, which is different from saying I'm not a racist. It's to say through kenosis or the self-emptying, I'm going to use my privilege to advocate for those of color. Uh, and that's a different conversation than what we typically have in the church. We stop with um, what well, we gave them a place at the table, and so we're good. Now we've got to move toward kenosis and 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 advocate in such a way that it, it, it allows us to use our power and privilege for their growth. And the third is delight, and that's one I keep saying on the interviews with folks. Delight is my favorite word because uh, it's a word we don't really use, but it's it's shaped by this idea that that when when Jesus lived, he, he took this collection of objects and turned them into a communion of subjects, right? Um, he took the other uh, and those who are other eyes and made them part of the communion and conversation. So, um, delight is, uh, is that aspect of making, uh, seeing the, 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 the image of God in the other and and truly delighting in that.
1: Yes, Stacy makes a a remark. Thanks, Stacy. Thank you, Mark. A space at the table is not good enough. We would like to eat and maybe someday cook. Just brilliantly said. Well, I'd like to offer for you all an opportunity if you'd like to dig in a bit deeper with Mark. Um, and the community, there's actually some of you have heard of Cameron Trimble. She's um, a consultant who is great. Uh, she will be Mark's guest tonight. And I want to let's see if I can share my screen. Okay, let me show you this. This is tonight's event, Preaching the Common Good, a gathering for pastors and church leaders. So Don will share in the chat box, the Zoom information for this call. You are invited to attend if you'd like to, it's 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And Mark, will you say a little bit more about Preaching the Common Good, this series?
3: Yeah, so we, uh, working with a publisher, we, we asked ourselves, you know, how do we, how do we continue the conversation beyond the book and uh, in, in light of the current political context, uh, especially over the next uh, 40 to 50, even 60 days. So we're going to extend this. It uh, started last week. We're going to go all the way at least until November 11th. And we want to create a, a an online community conversation about where we are uh, in our conversations in the church. What are we struggling with? And um, I mean, Cameron Trimble is is a rock star in every sense of the word. Uh, And I encourage you to check her website out. And she's a consultant. She's leading really important conversations around the country. So really lucky to have her. Um, And we're going to talk about uh, the anxieties that we're bringing into this as leaders into this election season, and then uh, at least begin to look at um, the the, the post-election trauma that we're going to have to, to navigate. Um, in next, the following week, I'm going to get uh, Doug Padgett. Doug's a national leader and activist with uh, Vote Common Good. Uh, and he's going to join me uh, as my guest next week and talk about his work. And um, he's got a really great movement going. And I encourage you to check that out. And then the, the following week, uh, hopefully, we'll confirm uh, Brian McLaren, who um, is another great thought leader in our country today. So i got some great voices. And I'm working on um, at least one uh, voice a person of personal color uh, in, in October if not two uh, that I can't yet announce but I'm trying to work on that.
1: And so these will be weekly at the same 6 p.m time.
3: Weekly 6 p.m. Mountain time. It'll be a zoom and then I'm going to connect it tonight to my Facebook live, or my, my Facebook and we'll go Facebook live, which uh, you can watch if you don't want to zoom it. Um, I know we're all zoomed out probably within you know a million calls a day. But uh, this is really an important conversation today. And it's, it's one of those things that we wanna to gift to other pastors who are struggling with these deep, hard conversations.
1: Absolutely, thanks so much. What an amazing resource. Well, I hope you all have um, gathered lots of wisdom from today's conversation. I so appreciate Mark and um, his special gift for preaching and truly for setting up this politics of compassion, which can be a framework that everyone can use uh, in their preaching and in their development of relationships with their congregation, no matter where they fall on the political spectrum. Any other announcements as we go from here, Jeff or Don? Yeah, I'd like to talk
0: about next week.
1: Yes. Do you want me to talk about next week?
0: So I can talk about next okay, week. Okay,
1: great. Yeah.
0: Uh, so, friends, we know, uh, as we've heard, conflict is a big deal right now, right? So, I want to ask you can conflict in the church be even necessary and beneficial? And how can we help people relate to one another when they have different styles of conflict? And how do we respond uh, to the trauma that we've experienced around us and the narcissism we find in our church and our community? Well, next week, we're gonna invite Reverend Dr. Lisa Withrow, who is presently an independent scholar and certified leadership coach and conflict management consultant. She's the founder and principal of Clear Transitions, uh, but was a former professor of leadership studies, vice president and dean for academic affairs in Methesgo. She also coaches persons in their own leadership formation. And she's gonna join us to talk about conflict transformation, to talk about different styles of conflict and how we Work at healing from the trauma and the narcissism we find in our churches today, and so we hope you'll join us next week as well at 11:30, um, as we start doing these vital conversations each and every week. And the uh, sign up will—you'll receive a sign up link for next week's uh, in the follow-up email that Don's going to send you about this week's. And so, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Annie, very much for
1: being here today. Annie, I'll let you close. All right. I wonder, Mark, would you just close us out in prayer this morning as we go from this space? Thank you.
3: Gracious and loving God, in these highly polarized times, we find common ground only by your grace and by your peace which passes all understanding. And so as we leave this space today, may we carry that peace into the world to be peacemakers in our communities and in our world. Give us your blessing that we might go wherever into the world to be a part of what you're already blessing in all that we do and all that you're doing apart from us. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. What
0: are vital conversations?
1: Vital, definition one.
0: Of the utmost importance.
1: Contemporary, meaningful,
2: valuable, concerned with, or necessary to
1: the maintenance of life, health, resiliency,
0: wholeness, life. What are vital conversations?
1: Important talks between two or more people about contemporary issues that lead to,
0: or are a challenge to,
1: the health, the vitality, life of our churches, our communities,
0: our people, our world. Welcome to Vital Conversations.